Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 417 of Her, the podcast where you're going to hear the truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her potential for breast cancer and wise words from a breast surgeon with breast cancer. I mean, this is such a unique episode. Before we begin, just know that this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Solaray Vitamins, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y. You know, we all try to be able to get in our vitamins and nutrients and mm, from our food, but yeah, well, so we're not that perfect. And so we need to be able to fill in the gaps. So those liposomal multivitamins for women are what you really want to aim for right now. So run on over to solaray.com to learn more. And here's your first reminder to go to iTunes after the episode and rate and review the show because I'd love to hear from you. My whole team just jumps up and down with joy when they hear from you. Your feedback is really golden. Okay, platinum, really. All right, it's time for her. The podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. So scrolling across my Twitter feed, I come across these fabulous tweets from Dr. Liz O'Reardon. Now, Liz was extraordinary. I just couldn't help but run on over and learn more about her because she's a fellow physician She is a consultant oncoplastic surgeon at Ipswich Hospital in the UK. So she's across the pond. I even brought along my cup of tea just to be able to do this all right. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Thank you, Pam. Okay, I want to tell them more about you, though. In 2015, at the age of 40... Liz was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer, which is somewhat ironic as she's a breast cancer surgeon. That's right. Within a week, she started chemotherapy, followed by mastectomy, reconstruction, radiotherapy, and then started blogging about her experiences as a physician and a patient. And, you know, as a physician, I'm telling you, what a journey. God almighty. And this letter to talking all over the world, including a TEDx Stuttgart talk, and as a fellow TED speaker, that had to be fun, and all of your experiences. You've written books. Under the Knife was uh, certainly a great title for one, but the latest one now is The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, which you wrote with Professor Trish Greenhall. I love this. So you're back to work, passionate about listening to the patient voice and improving patient care. So I just thought, What an extraordinary honor to be able to talk to one of my colleagues who is a breast cancer surgeon with breast cancer. I mean, come on. So what I thought would be fabulous is for you, Liz, to tell us about your experience and to tell us about what happened as a physician going through all of this and what compelled you to write The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer. It's all completely ironic. As a consultant breast surgeon, I never checked my breasts. I never thought I would ever get breast cancer. It was never going to happen to me. 
And I'd had a couple of cysts in my late 30s and a mammogram and a scan were all normal. And one morning I looked in the mirror after a shower and I noticed a lump in my left cleavage. And I wasn't worried because I just had a normal mammogram six months ago. But I told my mum and she said, will you get it checked out because I'm worried if you're not. So I went to see my breast surgeon, who's a woman who trained me, and the mammogram was normal. And I had an ultrasound scan. Now, I do ultrasounds myself, so I looked at the screen. And the minute the sonographer put the probe on my breast, I saw a cancer. It was a typical appearance. I didn't need to wait for the biopsy. I knew. And not only did I know it was cancer, at the age of 40, in that split second, I knew I'd need a mastectomy because it was big. I'd need chemotherapy because it was young. I had a good idea what my 10-year survival would be. And I got to tell my parents that I'd be telling them I had cancer in a week's time. And it was like this light bulb clicked off and it wasn't happening to me. It was happening to somebody else. Because as a breast surgeon, I've looked after the best and the worst scenarios of breast cancer. I couldn't unsee all of that in my head. Wow. I mean, whoa, you diagnose yourself and there you are immediately turning the tables. You are now both physician as well as patient. Did you check your genetics for the breast cancer gene? No, they didn't. I had no family history and I was 40. So in the UK, that doesn't meet the criteria. So we didn't. And I had a lobular ER positive cancer, which tends not to be genetic. But it was, part of me was weirdly excited to see what chemotherapy and treatment would be like. But then I was terrified because I knew everything about the treatment as a doctor, but I knew nothing about being a patient. Wow. Did a lot of the conversations you once had with patients, I mean, you obviously continue to have with patients who have breast cancer, did some of that start coming back to you like, oh, now I understand what they meant? Or you started to maybe identify with their journey, their experience? Well, it made me realize how little I knew about the care my patients had. So I had to have chemotherapy first to shrink the tumor down because I was young. I was always going to have it first. And I didn't realize you lost all the hair on your body. I knew you lost the hair on your head. I didn't realize your pubes and your leg hair fell out. And that discussion about fertility, my husband and I didn't have children. We hadn't made a decision whether we were going to have a family or not. And suddenly in 30 seconds, as part of the discussion about side effects of chemo, do you have kids? No. Well, it's big. We don't want to take the risk of IVF so you won't have children. Oh, gosh, that was quick. That decision was made for me. And I had no idea how hard it was to make a decision about whether you want to have your breasts reconstructed. Now, most women have three or four weeks at most to make that decision because you want to treat the cancer. I had the luxury of five months of chemotherapy and I was still conflicted. You don't know what your breasts mean to you until you're told one's being removed. And then it's hard to think logically because you've got cancer going through your brain. And I felt guilty that vanity was a reason for wanting a reconstruction. Well, you know what's really interesting? Early on in my career as an internist, you know, I would talk to women. I've done a lot of work in breast cancer for advocacy as well as the big foundations, et cetera, the race for the cure for breast cancer and all of that in the USA. 
And I'll never forget, as long as I live, this beautiful, wonderful woman coming in in her late 40s. And she had been diagnosed, and she had already finished up with her chemotherapy and the rest of it. She said the hardest part for her was losing her eyebrows and her eyelashes. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute now. You know, you had a serious breast cancer. Aren't we just, you know, like naively me, aren't we just so happy to be alive and, you know, rocking and rolling? And she goes, no, I want my eyebrows and my eyelashes back. They are who I am. Yeah, I get that. Completely. I could cope with losing my hair because I get migraines. They didn't want me to cold cap. But because I wear glasses, my eyelashes are the thing that I would accentuate to make me look like a woman. And when you're losing your breast, you're losing your ovaries. I've lost the hair. I can't flirt anymore. When I went to have my mastectomy, I had two eyelashes left. I asked the anaesthetist to put a gel pad down before they taped my eyes shut so they wouldn't rip out my final eyelashes when they took the tape off at the end of surgery. These little things can have such a huge impact when you've lost so much. I just think that that's extraordinary. And, you know, we as physicians, we treat, we're empathetic, we're compassionate, we're supportive. We use our skills to be able to do everything that we do. Yet really understanding the patient experience is huge. And I think there are two things that really stick out from my own experience of being a doctor and a patient. And it's when I had to have radiotherapy. At least three quarters of my patients have radiotherapy after their lumpectomy, yet I had never seen the radiotherapy machine or the position my patients had to lie in. And I had never had the time to hear my own radiotherapy colleagues consent patients for it. So when I was telling them about it, I would say, oh, it's just like an x-ray. You might be a bit tired. Yeah, right. And realize mine was delayed by three months because I couldn't get my arms above my head because my arms were stiff after surgery. And it was just getting how important all of this is, but I had no idea. But another thing that really, really, well, there were two, but one is the impact of the menopause, especially on young women like me. Never been through it. My only memory was my mum having hot flushes, going into the freezer aisle every day to cool down in the local shop. And I used to tell women, you might have some hot flushes and a bit of vaginal dryness, but it should settle down in six months because that's what I thought. And then I'm 40. I've lost my libido overnight. There's vaginal dryness, there's pain, there's the hot flushes. I'm dripping with sweat every hour on the hour at night. Oh my God. And I never told women what they could take instead of HRT. And suddenly I was struggling thinking... I've done so many women a disservice without realizing it because they cope with these symptoms for five or 10 years. Yeah, it's so interesting. Let's stay with this for a minute. For women out there on the Her Podcast land, as you know, I believe the UK is pretty much the same as the United States in terms of onset of natural menopause, which usually occurs around 52-ish, plus or minus. So when you have a 40-year-old who is suddenly thrown literally overnight into menopause, here's what that really means. And you and I can talk about this, Liz, because both of us play in this because I've been working on this for a long time. The body, a woman's body, requires a good 10 years, really slowly but surely, to stealthfully wean off the sex hormones, especially estrogen. And that's because it's so powerful and it involves damn near every tissue in our 
female bodies that you can't just sort of yank it out of there. What you do is you very slowly, the body is very smart. It just kind of weans itself off and, you know, you have some symptoms and back and forth. But if you're generally taking better care of yourself, et cetera, physically active, good nutrition, blah, blah, then it shouldn't be horrific. But when a woman is thrown into menopause prematurely in this case, and it could have been surgery, you know, gynecologic surgery or anything like that. But when she's thrown into that, it is absolutely horrific. And for the longest time, I can only speak for the USA doctors, he was like a blow off. Okay, honey, listen, we can't give you hormonal replacement therapy, duh, because <laughs> this is breast cancer. So we have a problem. So why don't you just, you know, buy some fans and slap some ice on yourself? And meanwhile, women are miserable. And now I must say, I'm very happy about this because I'm running a trial right now with breast cancer and an intervention for menopausal hot flashes and sleep impairment. I can tell you right now, there's a growing appreciation that this is horrific. So do you still have hot flashes? I still get them occasionally. The thing is, when you have breast cancer treatment for an ER-positive breast cancer, the menopause is instant. It happens in two or three days. And it's important for you and your partner to understand what is happening to you. I then had my ovaries removed. My cancer came back on my chest wall two or three years later. So I still have hot flushes every now and again. Thankfully, in the UK, the British Menopause Society has a great list of alternatives to HRT that women can take to help with the vasomotor symptoms. And I'm on several of them, which do help. And vaginal estrogen and using lubricant to make your life better. So tell me about that UK prescription for hormones. Yeah, there are lots of drugs that you can have instead of HRT. For example, atypical painkillers like gabapentin and pregabalin can help with the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flushes and night sweats. So can antidepressants like citalopram and venlafaxine, but you need to check if you're on tamoxifen. There's also a heart drug called clonidine that can help with the hot flushes and night sweats. And then for the genitourinary symptoms, everybody should be using lube from the time they start having sex, but a sensible lube that, lube that doesn't have parabens and chemicals that can cause thrush and vaginal estrogen to help with the water infections and the pain and to make sex less painful. And we should be telling every woman, there's all these things you can take that you are probably going to need. Here you are. Helping them from the get-go. Now, I've got a little something, something I'm going to share with you, and I'm also going to give you a gift. Okay. Okay, you ready? Yes. I'm working with a phenomenal group of MIT, you know, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. These are material science engineers who stumbled upon a thermoregulatory intervention for hot flashes, as well as sleep impairment. Currently, we're overseeing a study with the Mayo Clinic at Ohio State University. We're in phase two of this study showing that there is tremendous efficacy in a simple, straightforward wearable. It's non-pharmacologic. It's actually now available in the UK through Boots, boots.com. It's called the Ember, E-M-B-R, Wave. It's just Wave. The wave, get it? The thermal waveform? Yeah, completely. And what it does is you wear it on the inside of the wrist. Now, get this. This is kind of interesting. This is why I was so fascinated with this, because when I was a little girl, my grandmother would say, oh, it's a hot day. Put some ice here. 
And I guess she didn't realize she was actually an MIT material <laughs> science engineer at the time. But what happens is you actually communicate with the autonomic nervous system when you have that cooling going on, but the cooling has to be dynamic. It comes and goes, so it's a thermal waveform, not static. Static numbs you out. And then what it does is it communicates with the thermoregulatory centers in the brain and allows you to tamp down the total body hot flash. And we've actually done some incredibly cool stuff that was just presented at the North American Menopause Society as research abstracts looking at both sleep impairment and hot flashes. So I would love to be able to open up your world to yet a new digital therapeutic, which allows women, you know, in the USA, women are like, oh, I don't want to take another pill. And you take so many tablets after cancer treatment. You take the tablets to stop it coming back and the tablets to help with the side effects of the tablets and then yet more tablets. And this sounds amazing if it works. Yeah, and it totally worked. The reason why is I'm an evidence-based scientist. I was trained at the National Institute of Health. What we are is acid about this. We've worked with physicians at Harvard University, Stanford University. We only work with top tier. It's not a gimmick. And I'm all about promoting proper evidence-based stuff, not take this supplement, have some magnesium. It's got to be proper science tested to make sure it works before you even give it to the general public. And I really honestly think now who it works best for are people who have moderate to severe hot flashes. You get a greater delta. And for the podcast out there, that means you get a greater change because your symptoms are worse, which is also why in breast cancer, we see such great help here because women are thrown into, I mean, that's where I actually learned how devastating these symptoms can be when we really quizzed these amazing women and they told us how hard this was on them. We also did a study, believe it or not, in something I really wanted to do. So I completed it last year and we presented it at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, prostate cancer. Think about it. A guy should never have hot flashes. Makes no sense. Because men still produce estrogen. Because we throw them into menopause, and it is absolutely devastating. So we also studied it in that with the Dana-Farber Institute, Cancer Institute in Boston. Lo and behold, major deltas there too. So I guess really at the end of the day, what you've been doing, Liz, is you've been advocating for women who have breast cancer, because God knows you know. But I think as a doctor, I didn't know. I bought 10 books, and the woman I wrote my breast cancer book with bought another 10 books because we had no idea what it was like to be a patient. And when you Google, and I used to tell my patients, don't Google, but it's the first thing I did. There's some scary stuff out there. Often it's a lot of patients who have bad experiences who are blogging about them, and your view can be very biased against what's not normal. We wrote the book we wished we'd had to help us from diagnosis all the way through to living when your doctor says goodbye. And it's been incredible to use the book as another way of helping women since I had to retire. Yeah. And so what have you been doing in your own life? So you went through this, you had this recurrence with the chest wall, you had, I assume, a, a total abdominal hysterectomy. No, no. So because it was just on my chest wall, I had my implant removed. I had more tissue taken away from my armpit, more radiotherapy. 
And then I needed just to have my ovaries removed so I could be put onto an aromatase inhibitor. How long ago has it been since you were diagnosed with breast cancer? My first cancer grade three was stage three, sorry, was in 2015. And then it came back in 2018. Mm -hmm. So that was three years. That was three years. Yeah. What's been going on since then? So I retired in 2019 because my arm didn't work anymore. I physically couldn't operate. And since then, I've kind of ended up writing and talking and podcasting all over the world just to try and find a new way to help women because I know what it's like and I know I can help them and I know I can help them understand what's happening to them because you take nothing in when you're told you've got cancer. And although I miss operating with my life, it's really nice to know with a podcast or an article, you get a comment that thinks, yeah, I did something good today. And you must get that with this, Pam, the feedback. I think that, wow, here you are, you were literally... I guess, robbed of your ability. I was. I lost. I spent 20 years of my life. I had a PhD in molecular oncology. I had trained to be the best oncoplastic breast surgeon I could be. I even did a postgrad degree in it. I'd only been a consultant for two and a half years. And then I got breast cancer. But actually, it made me realize I'm the world's most boring dinner party guest because medicine meant I had no life. It was job, exam, job, exam, on call. I had no hobbies. And actually, retiring at 43 meant I could do stuff for me and I could have fun and actually learn to lighten up a little bit. It's not all about work. And I thought it was at the time. Wait a minute. It's not all about work? No, it's not. But it's like, it's, I lost my identity. When people say, hi, who are you? What do you do? I can't say I'm a breast surgeon anymore, but actually I'm Liz. And I don't want my gravestone to say she always went in at midnight to see her patients. I am much more than my career. And although I loved my career, it was really hard. Actually, telling up to 10 women a day they had cancer or it had spread and absorbing all that negative emotion. We get taught as physicians how to break bad news but there's no one to pick up the pieces when you're broken at the end of a long day. And I didn't realize how hard that impact would be until I was the one doing it with a responsibility for the patients. Well, on top of all of that, the fertility issue. That was hard. I still grieve about the child I now know I really wanted. There are so many things that a cancer diagnosis or any major illness can take away from you. And whenever someone famous gets diagnosed or dies, it stirs up all these emotions. The guilt that you're alive and your friend is dead. Or, and this is really weird, you want your cancer to come back so you have to stop waiting for it to happen and you can just get on with it. No, I don't want my cancer to come back. But there are times when every day you're waking up thinking, is this a cough or a cough? That anxiety is so hard. Sometimes you just wish it would. It's really weird. There's nothing logical about how you cope with life after a cancer diagnosis. How do you cope with that uncertainty in all of the things you were describing, like, and then I discovered to do this and that now in my life and finding other points of joy. Do you meditate? Are you spiritual? How does that work for you? Firstly, time is a great healer. I was a wreck in the first year after both my diagnoses and time has let me distance myself from what's happened. Two things for me. One is nature. I don't like meditating or being mindful at a certain time, but I look out the window and I hear the birds singing 
or I volunteer in a hedgehog sanctuary and I'm just looking after helpless animals. That to me is giving something back without wanting anything in return and switching off. The other for me is exercise. And again, we now know exercise can halve the risk of recurrence. It can help with all your symptoms. We should be telling people to exercise from the day of diagnosis. And that for me, that's when I can switch off completely. What do you do for exercise? Now, everyone knows that I'm an athlete, so I'm like a nutcase about exercise. Okay. So I was a triathlete when I was diagnosed, and I did a sprint triathlon halfway through chemo very slowly and a half Ironman a year after finishing. Now I don't have the time to train for all three sports seriously. So I cycle with my husband and I took up weight training because the weights are almost more important than the aerobic exercise. And I got ripped and shredded during COVID using resistance bands and dumbbells. But I've just started open water swimming. I had my first ice swim last week, breaking ice. And it's bonkers and I'm only in for a couple of minutes. But that to me, it's really healing. And I feel so much better for it. So are you looking at doing the channel? I'm just... Oh, God, no, no. I used to race butterfly when I was 15. I had shoulders out here. I didn't need shoulder pads. And I dreamed of swimming the channel. But I would have to put on about three or four stone in weight to help insulate me. And it's a long way to go. And I get seasick. And I think my body gets ill if I push it to long challenges, especially in cold water. So I now... I just exercise because I love it. I've stopped taking the pressure off with crazy challenges. I think, yeah, I want to cycle in the mountains. I'll go and do that. I make it more about fun than potentially setting myself up for failure. I love that whole attitude, Liz. Obviously, I'm an exercise nutcase. So I already see that so many people, and we've turned on a lot of women over here in the USA to exercise through the work of one of my colleagues. I'm on the board of the American College of Sports Medicine and Katherine Schmitz, who was one of our- Oh, she's amazing. I love Katie. Yeah. She's awesome. Katie is amazing and she's written phenomenal studies. It's all evidence-based. And she and I had long talks about the frustration about the old way of talking about this. Oh, you have breast cancer and you have chemotherapy and radiation. You should just sit there and do nothing all day. It's wrong. I think exercise should be the first drug prescribed to anybody with any chronic illness, any cancer. And it's like the doctors are going to give you the best that medical science has to offer. And for your part of the contract, you are going to exercise to give our drugs the best chance of working. And it empowers you because it's something you can do. And it's free. You just need a pair of trainers. Well, you know what I tell everyone to do? If you, and I quote, forget to exercise. Yeah. mm -hmm. So what you do is you take your sneakers, put them near the front door with socks in them and don't give me any excuse. I'm also a naturaholic and we already know through eco-psychology, there's some really brilliant research out there, how much it helps control stress hormone. You know, it elevates our endorphins and obviously it's just plain healthy for you, mind and body, because they're never separated, they're inseparable. And so getting out into nature is one of the most healing things you could possibly do. What about nutrition? What do you recommend? I'm, I've been scrolling through your complete guide to uh, the management of breast cancer. And so what are you recommending for nutrition? Because many women are like, oh, do I go vegan? And you know, do I go extreme? And what do I do? We get a lot of this, especially on Instagram, of an awful lot of people promoting crazy diets, supplements, infusions, and I hate it. All you need to eat is a well-balanced, healthy diet with a rainbow of fruit and vegetable and nothing that comes out of a packet. It's boring. 
It's sensible. If you eat like that, then you don't need supplements. You don't need extra minerals. You don't need anything else. It's just boring, healthy, simple food. The only supplement that you may need if you are postmenopausal is a bone health supplement with calcium and vitamin D. If you want to be vegan, that's fine. If you want to avoid dairy, that's fine. It's not going to cure your breast cancer. You know, it's interesting. There was a study done a number of years ago that looked at what was the first lifestyle change people wanted to do upon diagnosis of cancer of any kind. Nutrition. They immediately just right over to nutrition because then what they're doing is somewhat akin to taking a pill. It's like, I'm going to take my Brussels sprouts today. And you're actually actively doing something. Now, obviously exercises too, but people go to nutrition first because part of it is they already know they were eating trash to start with. So now it was time to clean the whole thing up. But I really wanted you to, you know, hopefully I was, you know, read your book to really drive home that there's no crazy extreme diet. There's no nuttiness involved here, that it's about clean eating and making certain to try to get in a diversity of carbohydrate, protein, and fat, making sure it's the highest quality. And then really at the end of the day, combining that with physical activity, because one without the other is useless. You can't do one or the other. And I get how how people are lured by spend $80 a month on this supplement and you think you're eating healthily because you've had your super green powder. You just need a healthy diet. It can be expensive. It can be hard. You may not feel you have the time to cook. And I've been there. I have weeks where I just live off toast and cereal because I can't be bothered. My husband's away. I'm not perfect. And I think a healthy diet has to be 80-20. You know, if you want a glass of bubbly or a bit of cake, then have it. Just not all the while. Because it has to be a lifestyle. Diets don't work. If there was a diet that cured your cancer, your doctors would tell you from the very day you were diagnosed. But we don't, because there isn't. And I know it's really hard. A lot of women going through breast cancer treatment put on weight because the menopause slows down your metabolism. And we know that if you are living with obesity, the risk of recurrence is higher. So you have a slim fit doctor like me saying, yeah, I'm sorry you've got breast cancer and the tablets are going to make you gain weight, but I need you to lose weight and eat healthily and exercise and don't drink as much. Off you go. Great. What do I do? It's really, really hard. And I get that. Well, you and I both know that both in the United States and the UK, we pretty much parallel each other with overweightedness and obesity, especially. I know that in the USA, if the trending keeps going the way it is, that the majority, that could be 51%, who the hell knows, but the majority of American adults will be obese, not overweight. They're already, we have a majority who are overweight right now. But now that you and I as physicians, and we're both physically fit and healthy and all the rest of it, and we try to do our work and this and that, We look around us and we're now becoming outnumbered in many respects. And when our patients come in and they are already quite overweight or obese, now they have all of this going on. You have to deal with the chemotherapy, the radiation, the surgeries, the, you know, all the rest of it. At the same time, someone tells you that the excess amount of adipose or fat on your body 
is pro-inflammatory and it's increasing the risk of recurrence. Now you got to face that and you know what a devil that one is. But I'm a someone who is a firm believer based upon evidence-based science, again, that if you take it step by step, literally, and you just do small, sticky steps, that means that when you took that step, the habit stuck. Exactly. Yeah. And then you could sustain it over time, build upon a stronger foundation. It's just that we live in a society where media says everything overnight, 10 pounds, no problem. I know. Get your beach body in 12 weeks. And I think it is. You start with exercise. I want you to walk for 10 minutes a day. Brisk walking 10 minutes a day is enough to make a difference. As they exercise more, they'll hopefully feel a bit better about themselves so they might want to change their diet. It's just slowly saying, and I think rather than you must do this, these are things you can do to take control, to empower yourself to be better in the future. But it is really hard. Well, now, you guys over there in the UK, across the pond, were some of the first to you know, use that F word, fasting, the 5-2 and all the rest of it. Those are all Brits. So what do you say when someone says, well, I'm just going to do severe caloric restriction and I'm going to fast three days a week or whatever? I would say I'm not a nutritionist and it's not the guidelines recommended for people having cancer. I know it's the latest fad and a lot of people have lost weight on it. And if that's what you want to do, then go ahead and do it. It's not what I would recommend. My definition of success is one word, sustainable. Crazy stuff is not sustainable. I'm, you know, I don't break anyone's heart out there, but if you can't do this five years from now, then something's wrong with what you're doing. Now, there are two scientists who I'm sure maybe you, you've read about, but here in the United States, who have really done some very cutting edge work in what we call time-restricted eating. The first one is Dr. Sachin Panda at the Salk Institute. And the second one is Walter Longo, and Walter's amazing. So to your point, and there's a great consumer book that people can buy called The Circadian Code by Sachin Panda. It's very easy read. What he basically did was address the issue of the craziness of the way people eat. They eat like, you know, freaking 18 hours a day and, you know, newsflash, we only have 24 hours. And we're doing it against our own circadian rhythm, which is pro-inflammatory. And then to top that off, the pattern is terrible. We eat very little for breakfast and we have some more, you know, something for lunch. And then all hell breaks out in the later part of the day, which is the worst time. Yeah, because you go to sleep. You go to sleep with a huge full stomach and you're not exercising. So that food just goes to fat. You should eat early at night and you, you should eat less at night. I'm all with that. You invert the pyramid. Instead of doing it like that, you do it like that. So I love that. And when Walter had a conference, the very first World Congress on this, this was in 2018. I was there with him and presented and all the rest of it. Here's what was interesting. <laughs> I was in a hotel with, with global leaders in this, all the top researchers from Australia and England. And there's actually an English researcher who works with breast cancer there, who does a lot of work with this. And one of the things we did at breakfast, you know, we all be sitting around and talking. I said, so how do you eat? See, now the joke is, how do the experts eat? 
Do they believe their own research? So I'm listening around the table and I'm going, okay, you know, let's have at it. 1410, 1410, 1410, 1410. Some of them went to 16.8, but what do I mean by that? You spend 10 hours during the day, those are your feeding hours, which are very reasonable. That could be 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Nothing wrong with that. And you could play them, but the earlier the better, to your point, especially as you're aging. And also if you have a diagnosis like cancer. But 1410 was the winner because it was highly livable and people knew how to be able to manipulate it well enough. It's not fasting. It's living by your circadian rhythm, which is sacrosanct. You may want to do crazy things with your life, but the earth keeps rotating despite all your crazy ideas and you have to stick with what the earth rotation is doing to your circadian rhythm. So there's an idea that I've passed to my patients, and Walter Longo's work has shown that it has very positive results in breast cancer, colon cancer, and otherwise. So just saying, what do you think? I think the idea of eating, when it used to be you eat like a king at breakfast and a pauper in the evening, I think that is healthy for most people, but I don't think you can claim it's a nutrition it's very hard when you do studies looking at people who've been treated with cancer to prove that the nutrition is the only difference between the two groups of people when there are so many other factors going into it. But I, I think if you eat well and you feel well, then you will feel good about yourself. You're more likely to exercise more and have less stress and drink less. And it kind of leads to a whole role of good behaviors. And I think that can only be a good thing. I love that. And I, you know, I also throw in meditation, which by the way, before everyone gets all glassy-eyed going, oh no, she's going Buddhist on me. Meditation is just simply self-reflection. And I'm asking, we as women especially are worried about everyone who comes within 100 feet of us. We care more about other people than ourselves half the time. And mm, don't do that. So when you check in with other people like, hey, how are you doing? When's the last time you did that to yourself? And so I'm a firm believer in journaling I love meditative walks. See, I'm a walk and think person. If you have a pet, that helps. But as one of my cardiology colleagues at Harvard once said, walk your dog even if you don't have one. See, I used to go and tell my patients to go and have a bath with a glass of wine and a book and lock the door. Just take half an hour in the day for you when no one else can interrupt you. It's that self-care. You have to be able to look after yourself to then be able to ask others for help because I, like many other women, was so good at coping with everything myself. You run the household, you run the job, you do the shopping, you do the washing. I'm fine. I don't need anybody. But I really did during chemo and I found it very hard to ask for it. So I think just getting in tune with, with who you are and what you really need to nourish you and nurture you can really, really help. Just listening to you is just, if I were thinking about, you know, a friend with breast cancer, if someone has breast cancer out there in, in the Herb Podcast land, I think that you're just such a comforting, knowledgeable voice at so many levels. So how can women learn more about you? Where are the accesses, your own podcast, your website, all the rest of it? Tell us all. I will. But before I do, I want to share with you one thing you can do. If you know someone who's just been diagnosed or is going through treatment, send them a card in the post. 
My uncle lived 400 miles away from me and he sent me a card every Friday during Kibo just to tell me about the birds in the garden. And getting something that's unexpected that isn't a bill just meant the world to me. It really is little things that can make a difference when you don't know what to do or what to say, just I'm thinking of you. Wow, that is so beautiful. That sort of along the same lines is I've now seen more women receive a very interesting kind of gifting, which is not just beautiful cards, as you said, because that means everything, especially the radical concept of actually writing a letter. <gasps> no, no email there. So that's beautiful. At the same time, to your point about taking that bath and the rest of it, putting together a little care basket of bath salts, body lotion, throw in a good book, maybe they might even like it, and just things that are a little bit of sort of getting back into your body because your body has been through hell and back. I think that that's a beautiful idea. So I, I think that ending with that little recommendation is the best. Now, here's the deal. How do women get to learn more from you? So we have the book. The book is The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, and that's available in all good bookshops. My memoir about my life as a female surgeon learning to operate and then having breast cancer is called Under the Knife, and that's out in July this year. My podcast is Don't Ignore the Elephant, where I talk about the stuff that no one else talks about, like sex and death and body image. My website is my name, liz.ariadon.co.uk, and there you can find all my socials. Where can we find the podcast? Which platform? Uh, it's on Spotify, Podbean, Apple, called Don't Ignore the Elephant. I've got some great guests coming up. The first one is my mum, who sadly died just before Christmas of her own cancer, but we recorded it during chemo, and it's going to be a lovely listen. Oh, my God. I have absolutely got to listen to that. What an absolute jewel you are, Liz. And I, I really mean that, again, as a fellow physician, my heart goes out to you with all that you've been through and the courage that you've had. With all of this information to other women out there, it reminds me of, in the midst of difficulty, lies opportunity. And there you are all the way through. Liz, thank you so much for being on the Her Podcast. Thank you, Pam. I've loved it. Marvelous. And everyone out there, please take a moment to run on over to iTunes to rate and review the show because my team and I are waiting to hear from you. Okay, so that was a command and an order. And also another big shout out to SolarayVitamins.com for their marvelous sponsorship of the Her Podcast. And remember, you're multiple vitamins, ladies, because you know what's going on in your life. Mm, Got to make certain to fill in those nutritional gaps. Listen, I'm so happy to be here because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, the host of the Her Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek and Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peek MD. And just remember to catch every single episode of the Her Podcast on Radio MD, iTunes, Spotify. I'm on all the platforms. You will find me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here with us today. Hey, stay safe and stay well. <laughs>